Hello and welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast. I'm your host Tarun Gupta and our guest today is Mani Mahadevan, founder and CEO at Valer. Valer is a fintech startup helping democratize access to tax optimization and asset protection tools of billionaires. Prior to founding Valer, Mani was chief of staff for Apple Card at Marcus by Goldman Sachs, and before that, he held product and operation roles at the Remotier and Medallia. Mani started his career as a business analyst at McKinsey and holds a bachelor from the University of Michigan. Join us as we discuss the increasing complications in the UX tax code, making tax mitigation strategies accessible through tech, starting a company during the pandemic, Mani's opinion on interesting fintech trends in the US, the shift from corporate to entrepreneurship and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Mani. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Drong. Uh, excited to chat. So where are you joining us from? So I'm uh, joining you from Michigan uh, currently. I live in Miami, Miami, which is probably cliche for a founder who runs a kind of tax uh, mitigation company, but currently visiting family in Michigan. So you grew up in Michigan? Yes. Grew up in Michigan, uh, went to the University of Michigan, uh, proud graduate there, went to the business school, which I know is rivals with... Uh, you at uh, Wharton, but went to the undergraduate school there. Awesome. All right. Let's start the questions. For our listeners who may not know, could you give an overview about your career and how did you develop an interest in fintech? Yeah. So my career, it's kind of, it's in retrospect, it looks a bit uh, kind of crazy. Of, so my background, starting consulting, working at McKinsey um, after I graduated from the University of Michigan. Uh, and then I went to start working in tech uh, and worked for an enterprise SaaS company called Medallia. And this is a big part of actually the reason I founded um, Valor is my experiences working at Medallia and the equity I got from it. After uh, Medallia, actually, two friends of mine who I went to the University of Michigan with founded a company called Remote Here, and they were kind of right in their growth stage of figuring out how to scale, and which is a really interesting problem and opportunity for me to own of how do you scale this business um, as it's just kind of hitting its growth period. And Remote Here, just for context, is the idea is that work is going remote. Uh, very kind of applicable in today's world. The thesis is, is as people are working remotely, they're going to travel more and want community and remote year help fulfill that. Now, good news is that thesis has probably turned out mostly correct. Uh, the bad news was remote year was got uh, essentially company ran out of money and sold when COVID hit because everyone stopped traveling. But after remote year, started working at Goldman Sachs in their Marcus division, um, as chief of staff on their Apple Card business. Now, I'd been interested in fintech for a long time. Um, and a lot of this started when, when I was younger and would travel and just see kind of the challenges of accessing financial resources of there's personal, I'm sure everyone, you know, both of you, everyone who listens to this podcast, you have, whenever you use a banking system in the US, it's very hard to be satisfied or excited and you see all sorts of problems and flaws. And so it's been something as someone who's naturally an optimizer thinks about how could this could be done better and how much you're leaving on the table. That's kind of always brought me to FinTech. And joining kind of Marcus and building the Apple Card was kind of that exciting opportunity that drew me in of this is where, you know, everyone who thinks about how do you create great products, Apple is on that list of companies that you think of does it really well. And it's a really small list. And you think about if you want to solve things in the financial services space, kind of having the brand and the reach and access of Goldman with kind of the product quality of Apple was a really exciting opportunity of someone who wants to work in fintech and create better financial services because I know the impact of that is a really unique opportunity. And 
kind of tying this all together while I was at uh, Goldman, uh, Medallia was IPOing. And at the time I lived in San Francisco. Um, so all the joys of San Francisco, including kind of the high taxes you get there. And for me, is this was kind of my first exit. And I was trying to think about how do I maximize what I take out of here and really kind of set up my financial safety net. And I knew enough to know, I'd read enough. And I'm sure you've read these same articles about how billionaires are able to avoid taxes legally. So I knew that there's ways to do this. I just had no clue where to get started. And it was really kind of going down that rabbit hole and realizing, A, my friends who'd been a part of much larger exits, it's really just hard to figure this out. It's really hard to access, really expensive. And kind of going through that uh, that pain, and but also seeing the value of it is what led me to start Valor and figure out how do you make these things more accessible um, to everyone so that everyone can build wealth the same way. I'm going to circle back to that. But what something I'm curious about is that you went from consulting to operational role in startups, and then you moved to Goldman Sachs, specifically Marcus, right? What helped yeah. you or what key skills helped you succeed in these roles? Yeah, it's a really good question because they're, they're very different roles. And I think this is a, uh, I think one of the really strong skills that you learn in startups is being adaptable and just being able to focus in on one problem at a time. And I think what I've done, what has been a skill set for me is I'm very analytical and I also tend to enjoy solving the hardest problem. So this is whether I'm at the startup or the large company, being willing to kind of dive into a new problem, tackle it and solve that is interesting to me. And I think that's, if you want to, whether it's start your own company or work in startups, you have to be adaptable and excited by these new challenges versus some people who just want to do the same thing over and over. That's just not going to work well in startups or building your own businesses. You have to get excited by those new challenges and be good at solving them and picking up new areas to, I think, to, to do well. Awesome. So let's talk about Valor, right? You, you mentioned that the tax system is complicated. So what is Valor and how does it help the common person with this? Yeah, so really, Valor, we talk about the way we describe what we're doing is we're democratizing tax mitigation. Really, what it is is, you know, the simplest terms is taking what billionaires and ultra high net worth individuals with family offices do to reduce their taxes and make it accessible to everyone. And so, this is everything from calculators to understand is this, are there structures that are helpful and would really meaningfully impact kind of my financial uh, future? Um, content help people understand how these structures work, the trade-offs, the benefits. And then kind of the other key piece is we set up and administer these structures. We we automate that to make it to make it a significantly lower cost, faster, more seamless process, so that more people can access it and capture more of the value themselves than handing it off to lawyers and kind of trust companies that typically have really high fees. Um, and so you you lose a lot of those gains too. Interesting. So so at what level of income does Valor really start making a difference to you, right? Is it only for people who are like somewhat high earners or is it for someone who's earning, let's say, an average wage of $40,000, $50,000? Yeah, so it, 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 is, it is a bit higher than this. This is where I'd say it's... So there's different problems we solve of, for instance, how can you sell highly appreciated assets like stocks or crypto or real estate tax-free and keep it in a tax-exempt structure? So there's how do we reduce capital gains or avoid that? How do you write off ordinary income? How do you avoid estate taxes? So... Depending on which tax someone's focused on, we have different solutions and there's different kind of barriers. I'd say at the minimum, it's probably someone who has at least, is earning at least six figures and is saving a good amount of their money. So that means they would rather be focused on reducing their taxes um, or they have highly appreciated assets, whether it's private startup equity, crypto or public stocks that they want to sell out of. 
um, having at least a couple hundred thousand dollars there is really the minimum where these trade-offs and the financial benefits make sense. And what, and I know you touched on this briefly, but what are kind of assets do you, do you deal with? So you mentioned startup equity, you mentioned crypto, yeah. what else? Yeah, so it's, I think it's, it's almost every asset under underneath the sun that, so it's startup equity, uh, public stocks, crypto, real estate, collectibles, try to think of carried interest, you know, private companies. I'm trying to think of uh, what are the things we, we, we don't see, to be honest, but most of the ways that people are investing and building their wealth, those assets are the things that we deal with to help them reduce their, how do you reduce the taxes on those pieces? And diving a bit deeper into, into Valor's business, right? How do you earn revenue? Is it more of a subscription model or, or do you uh, charge people one time? And what are your like biggest customer segments and cost centers? Yeah, so so the way we make money, so is traditionally in today's world, um, if you want to set these things up, you pay a lawyer and or accountant up front. It's a transactional experience where you're going to pay them one time. And then you're paying, if you're using a trust, you're paying typically a trust company to administer and manage that. And that's kind of an ongoing fee that's typically percent of trust assets, so it's subscription, but based on the assets. Um, so we do kind of all of that. Of We set up these structures at no cost, um, and then we charge an administration fee uh, to manage the trust, take care of all of that overhead. That is, it's, so it's, it is a subscription fee. Um, it's typically somewhere between 10 to 30% the cost of a traditional trust company. What I'm curious about is that when you decided to set this platform up, right, it must have been a big task, right, because there are so many components that go into it. So how did you go about yeah. setting, like, first educating yourself, choosing the right team, and then finally building the platform? Yeah, it, it, it is a really, uh, it, it's it's a really good call, and it is something that is, there is just, there's a ton of moving pieces in here. And this is one of those things, when I was first starting this, sometimes you don't realize, it's pretty common when I talk with founders of, people don't necessarily realize that the magnitude of the problem they're solving, right? You start with, this is such a pain point for me, and you see the scale of it and the opportunity, you get really excited, right? And then as you're getting deeper, kind of the surface area of the problem increases. And so I think the number one thing is, A, there's kind of that natural process of, man, this is a really impactful problem that I that I want to solve. And then you go deeper and you realize it's really complex and you have to limit your scope. So for us, it was starting with kind of one structure, one use case, specific types of assets we work with. And then anytime there was kind of new assets, we work with a lot of third-party accountants and lawyers and just really being thoughtful about what we can actually do and how much we can manage and keeping our focus there. So that limits the scope and the complexity of what all the kind of inputs we have to take in and just being very thoughtful about doing that of what we say yes to and what we say no to. I think that was kind of one of those first big uh, lessons we went through of th- to solve that. And so this is where now it's, as we're adding pro- products and use cases, it's much more incremental and kind of to this point of limits of scope and, we try to be pretty thoughtful about that. I'd say this is one of those things with the startup. You, you, it's very hard, at least maybe it's me, it's, it's hard to kind of master. There's a, you want to keep your team ambitious. You want to keep moving fast and take on more. But how do you balance that with keeping yourself focused is it's always kind of ongoing challenge. So you were found, you started, founded Valor in 2021, right? Which is yeah. again, a very interesting year to start a startup given the, given yeah. the pandemic, right? How have you grown since then? Like how many customers have you onboarded? Like what is the funding that you have raised? And then what's your vision for the yeah. next five years? Yeah, so it, it, it was definitely a very interesting time to, uh, to to start a company. And this is, so we started in 2021. We started onboarding customers at the uh, end, at, in October of 2021. Since then, we've onboarded more than 420 customers. 
and more than $250 million into kind of our trust products. And we've been fortunate to raise from Box Group, Canaan, Chapter One, Basis Set, Five Capital, as well as kind of number of angels. And, you know, it's it's been, you know, it's, it's been kind of phases of this, I think every kind of entrepreneurial journey, there's ups and downs where kind of you see different things are succeeding, then you find a new problem and you focus on that. I think the part that's most kind of exciting for us right now and where we really want to focus is, you know, it started out, the taking a step back, part of the Part of what really excited me about this problem is, you know, you see this a lot in politics today of people are questioning whether capitalism is like a viable model, right? And so I can tell you, I'm a huge believer in capitalism. I think the, the capitalism in its pure sense, it really aligns incentives of to capture value for yourself, you have to create value for the world. And it really creates this dynamic system that improves human productivity, the quality of life in its purest sense. Part of the challenge you see in today's world is regulatory capture and kind of capitalism being kind of mutilated to benefit certain groups over others, right? And this is where it's you see this particularly from the Bernies of the world, Elizabeth Warren, where they complain that the game isn't fair and it feels rigged. And that resonates with people despite, right, we live in a very, we're fortunate to live in a prosperous country that a lot of it's due to capitalism. But it is true. And this is, you know, the kind of to the tax code and the problem that Valor is solving is for the last 50 years, the U.S. tax code has grown by about 150,000 words a year. And what that practically means is unless you're the wealthiest of Americans and you have an army of lawyers and accountants, you have no chance of understanding what it is. This famous story of Donald Rumsfeld, who was the Secretary of Defense, led the Defense Department, had had a number of kind of leadership roles in the U.S. government over multiple administrations. Every year, him and his wife, so they had a team of lawyers and accountants who prepared their taxes. Every year, They'd file a letter with their taxes saying, we are highly educated people, him and his wife, both college, you know, influential folks saying, but we have no clue what's going on in our taxes. We pay professionals to do this and we're required to certify if this is accurate. And then they would sign this letter saying, but we have no clue whether or not it is. And he would also say, it's one of the great like sadness that disappoints my life that the U.S. tax code is never going to be accessible. And I think that's fundamentally the problem we're solving is today the tax code is just so inaccessible that it's, it kind of does break the game. Of you need a just an army of lawyers and accounts to make it to figure out what to do or how to reduce your taxes. This is where everyone who's listening to this podcast and pays their taxes, you sign your taxes, you know, whether you use TurboTax or whatever service or an advisor, you're signing your taxes, but you have no clue whether it's accurate or not. You're just hoping, right? And it, we're all hoping that it's done for and that you get as much as possible and you don't overpay. The reality is everyone's overpaying. You just don't know by how much, and it's not apparent. And what Valor, the part that's exciting is we're trying to figure out how do we make it accessible so that these structures and tools that, you know, they're not on TurboTax, they're not really accessible. How do we make them accessible to people? So the same way that the billionaire with the large family offices has a team of lawyers and accountants to reduce their taxes and minimize those, how do we make that accessible to the average individual? So everyone can build wealth that same way and the game isn't right. And that's kind of the, it's, you know, it's to kind of connect this, like we started, we were just solving one problem of. How do you help people sell highly appreciated assets tax-free? And it's been as we're adding more of these kind of different products in there and use cases, you start to see kind of, you know, we're seeing that traction towards how do we serve all of these common use cases and how do we help kind of everyone build wealth that same way? And, you know, this is depending on how you want to see this for us, we obviously get excited, but we get a lot of requests from other countries. You see the same problem kind of across democratic nations in the world. Every country has this just exponentially growing tax code that unless you're the wealthiest person, 
or uber wealthy, you, you know you have no chance of actually, how do you optimize it? And so it's the same kind of fundamental problem that, you know, it's an unfortunate reality, but for us, it's an exciting kind of opportunity of how do we make tax paying fair? And so that it's not these kind of tax mitigation strategies aren't inaccessible to everybody. And this just brings me to a very interesting question, right? Was there, as you're expanding, was there a use case that came to you through a client or a user and you were like, wow, this is truly fascinating. I never thought about this. It, it, it honestly, it's probably every every other day we get one of those situations of whether it's a w- w- asset class or a particular type of asset or um, just different situations. There's every day we see whether it's, you know, I remember early on there's folks who, we were chatting with people who had eight figures of collectibles and just realizing of, you know, these are tax, these are different assets and working with kind of our partners of what do you do here? Candlelight, it's like when we started, it was, you know, it's, a lot of what we started with was kind of the startup use case. So people in tech, uh, if you're selling these highly appreciated assets, how do you leverage QSBS or increase QS, stack QSBS benefits or sell appreciated assets tax-free? But then we started to, whether it's referrals or organically getting kind of these new use cases, there's a ton of them. I don't, I don't want to like share too much because for like confidentiality, but it's, it is, you see this all the time of the, the tax code is extraordinarily complex and you see just, whether it's assets or situations or people forgetting to pay, which, you know, it's people, it happens more frequently than you expect if people don't pay their taxes or forget about it. And, you know, there's all these kind of weird edge cases that come up. My next question might, might be of special interest for our listeners. Is Valor hiring? If yes, what do you look for in people that you hire? Yeah, yeah yes, we are hiring. And I think this is where, to kind of the earlier thing, is it's you always want to see people who are scrappy and they're excited to solve new problems and pick up new things. And one of the most interesting parts of startups is, right, like every month or two, there's kind of a new particular problem to, to solve. It's in the same general areas, product, sales, et cetera. But looking for that, someone who you want to work with, you're excited to chat about, they're smart, they're driven. Those are kind of key things. We're, we are a remote company, so you always want to see people who are really self-driven. I think that's particularly important in remote companies um, because you kind of have to be able to depend on folks to do that. Um, you know, we're really hiring across kind of sales, um, operations, um, and kind of marketing and content are kind of the key areas we're looking for folks right now. Now, switching over more to the macro macro trends, what are some white spaces or opportunity areas that you see within fintech? And do you think there are certain segments of fintech such as lending or payments that are ripe for disruption? Yeah, so I think there's tons of opportunity throughout fintech kind of. This is, it's one of the interesting, I mean, there's a fascinating piece taking it like, or, you know, the one mile view up. Fintech is one of the largest kind of sector, finance is one of the largest sectors in the economy. I don't think that there's a fintech company that's passed $100 billion yet. I, th- I believe PayPal is the largest and it's probably around 80. Um, so, you know, despite the success of Squares and, you know, PayPal's little world, fintech still in some sense hasn't broken through and it's, it still feels fairly early. I mean, one of the things I think about a lot is as we're building the Apple card, there's so many features and things we want to build onto the into the product that the financial infrastructure couldn't support. And so one of the things I always think about is just how far, but a lot of these features are things that are common across other products and tools in today's world. And so this is where it's, you know, I think the fintech infrastructure, there's tons of opportunity um, to improve this stuff. And I think any legacy player will tell you that. The challenge on those sides is I think there's huge opportunity, whether it's cost, features, um, that you can 10x improve what's out there. Challenges kind of um, trust, 
um, and go to market because you're dealing with very conservative players who uh, don't like a lot of risk with big banks and players at the core of kind of that are regulated in finance. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in financial infrastructure. I still think that there's, I think there's, you always want to bet on trends of what is something that rich people that is very exclusive today or for the last 10 years, but you expect over the next 10, 20 years to become kind of accessible or technology is going to enable that. So I think there's always opportunities. You're seeing a huge kind of rush of things that people trying to offer alternative investments access and things like that. So I think that's a piece of it, but I think broadly there's, there's a big opportunity for the kind of digital family office. There's a number of players that are going there. I think there'll be a huge opportunity for when people crack that nut and figure out how to target these different segments with kind of tax estate planning, kind of the assistant access to alternative investments as all these kind of pieces come into place, whoever's able to configure them, there's a really interesting opportunity. I'm, the lending space is one of those I'm fairly kind of bearish about, fortunately. Uh, I, I know that it's, it's a huge space. Um, I just tend to think it's it's hard to overcome the cost of capital advantages that large players have um, in a space that that's really what dictates most of consumer choice and the value prop. And this is the challenge with, right? The, the more commoditized the product is, which in some sense, all of fintech has a has finance and commodity involved. It's what part of this is product and experience driven and access versus cost and capital. Um, and so this is where you tend to see big players in finance, you know, they're less likely to be disrupted because cost of capital is a core component of the value prop. And I tend to think financial like infrastructure of how money moves, access, um, tracking, there tends to be a lot of opportunity there. I also tend to, I mean, part of obviously selfishly kind of bullish on kind of tax estate planning or tools, the way that wealthy people continue to build their wealth, becoming more accessible. I think that's another really kind of fast-growing opportunity as well. Since you work in consumer finance, I think I think this is the right question for you. With the rise of neobanks and other similar entities like social finance apps and et cetera, right? Do you think there's still consumers in the US that are underbanked? Or is that a problem yeah. that, is, that is solved for? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think it's it's true. Um, there is a, I don't know the numbers. I used to know these numbers off the top of my head. Um, but there's still a huge portions of America that are underbanked. Um, right. And this is where, whether it's trust issues, access, there's also this broad challenge of the profitability of serving them. And neobanks have really expanded this window. Historically, there's been a challenge when you have brick and mortar of reaching everyone just because you're constrained by the physical costs. Uh, neobanks make this easier. There's still a big challenge of serving certain segments that have high trust issues, language barriers, or candidly aren't financially worth it. And so you think of for a lot of these neobanks, for the folks that don't have much wealth or are building it or don't have consistent jobs, there's a challenge for, is it worth the bank to serve them? Because you know you also see a lot of pressure on fees and penalties going down on banks. And so if you're trying to serve a group of customers that most banks make money today on cross-selling other financial services, whether it's investments, loans, things like that. If you're serving, trying to serve populations who may not leverage those types of solutions, and you've seen kind of pressure come down on fees that you can charge for normal savings accounts and checking accounts, it becomes harder to serve certain uh, aspects of the population. And kind of from a second angle, I mean, this is the great thing about kind of humanity, right? Like we always want more. And so this is to the point of their services, and this is constantly changing, right? Like Wealthfront changed the game in kind of these robo-advisors. Now there's get access to alternative investment classes. 
there's going to always be new aspects of finance and wealth building that those with wealth are going to be creating advantages for themselves for, but are in the next 10, 20 years are going to be commonplace to serve the average individual, right? And the cycle never stops. So I think this is where it's, there's huge portions that aren't even served today. There's huge kind of portions of products and tools that the average person still doesn't have access to. Switching over to the last segment, what I'd like to do is introduce you more as a person to our listeners. And I have a couple of rapid fire questions lined up for you. The first yeah. one is, what is the fun fact about you that most people don't know? Uh, yeah, so I, I love to travel. Uh, travel to more than 60 countries. Uh, grew up between the US, Saudi Arabia, and Singapore. Um, so love to travel. Travel a lot less now as, as, as a founder. But love to travel. Always love to try new food, experience new things. I'm also a big kind of racket sports player. So if any of your listeners are in Miami, love to always play tennis. Uh, started to pick up paddle tennis which is, I feel like, a very Miami kind of racket sport. So folks are in Miami, but would love to play with them. When you decided to launch Valor or move from a corporate job to entrepreneurship, what was the biggest mental shift that happened? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's funny. Of every, every time you talk to a founder, or most of the founders, when I was thinking about this, they all have the same advice. Of They're like, there's a once-in-a-kind-of-lifetime experience. The highs are higher than you'll ever experience. The lows are lower than you uh, will experience. And you can't appreciate that until you get in. And it's just, I think the number one thing I've learned is just being able to like manage it and know that you have to kind of just like keep powering through it. Um, and that you just, you have to own everything. In Particularly in corporations, there's always someone else who you can kind of pass something off onto, right? There's really this strong sense of diffusion of responsibility. In startups, there's less so. But when you found a company, there's, it's 100% ownership over everything. And so just like realizing that is a, it is a, it is a switch where you realize like you're always on and you're always responsible for everything is uh, it's, it's something that you can it just meaningfully, I've noticed has changed myself, um, whether it's with a startup or just kind of more broadly in life. What advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs, especially those who are still in school? How do, should they approach their ideas and how should they take it off, off ground? Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's a, um, I think there's two parts of this is, is one is just knowing what you're getting into. Um, I think there's only so much you can do in preparation. I, you know, every adult needs of you can't prepare for how the highs and lows are. Um, and so I think just knowing that it's, there's not as much you can do to prepare, but knowing that it is going to be harder than anything you've probably done is just helpful. And then finding things that you're passionate about to that thing. There's plenty of people who found companies that aren't in things that they're interested in or problems they're excited about. But it's just harder. It is so hard to build and to build a company that it is something to to really make it through. I think you have to be passionate about it. Not to say like that's the only thing that matters. You want to find areas that you believe there's large opportunities in and can be meaningful and impactful at a large scale. But I think you also want to either have some special insight or be really excited that you'll be able to power through those challenges in a way that does create a distinctive advantage for you and um, kind of your company. If you could go back in time, is there any decision that you would take differently or, or change? I'd be more focused. I'd say no to more things. I'd be more focused when just running the company of just products, use cases, just be more focused up front. Do less. It's funny, but doing less, you, you do more by doing less. Um, and so that's the number one thing is, I think we've done a pretty good job, but I have been even more ruthless about saying no to things and just focusing on kind of the core things we're doing and it kind of staying close tied to our roadmap. And my last question to you is, 
who is an entrepreneur, fintech or otherwise, that you want to emulate, that you admire? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I think this is, um, I think of kind of what Max Lefchin's done as something that when you look at fintech has been pretty incredible of fintech is such a challenging space, but you look at, I, I, I don't know the market value of a firm, but he's someone who across different categories of fintech, whether it's PayPal, and you think about rails, credit cards, uh, transactions, to lending. He's been someone who's been able to identify kind of what are the opportunities, where are, uh, how can you significantly improve kind of the quality of the experience, access these opportunities at a massive scale and run these and execute them and make it real is, I don't know if there's, I'm trying to think of anyone off the top of my head who's done that at the scale in fintech. And I don't think no one comes to mind. And so I think that's incredibly impressive that he's had a couple of these in, you know, 20 years, PayPal was 2000 or 2002, sometime in that range. And so it's 20 years, he's done it in debt. He's done it in kind of with PayPal. It's incredibly impressive of to launch at that scale and quality um, and be leaders in their categories. All right. With that, money, we'll let you get back to work. But thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, really appreciate it. Enjoyed uh, chatting with you, Trong, and uh, would love to do this again. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the What in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at What in Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta. Gupta.